to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. When the United States emerged from its colonial experience with Great Britain, it carried two strong convictions about military service. One was opposition to a large standing army, the tool of kings and tyrants. The other was the ideal of the citizen soldier, the volunteer who serves in wartime and returns to civil life afterward. The Civil War would be fought by armies of such volunteers, but who would lead them? For their generals, they could turn to West Point, but what about the thousands of lieutenants and captains, the men who led them every day? We'll find out about those soldiers tonight from Professor Andrew Bledsoe, author of Citizen Officers, the Union and Confederate Volunteer Junior Officer Corps in the American Civil War. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to Prokopovich G at ECU.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z G at ECU.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you this chilly March evening in 2017 from the campus of East Carolina University, the Brewster Building, third floor, office A320, but not representing the campus of East Carolina University or any other university or any other institution anywhere, speaking only for myself, as always, and my guests tonight will do the same, because that's how we do it on Civil War Talk Radio. Well, it is 2017. It is a cold uh, spring night. We had snow this past weekend. We had 70 degree temperatures a day before that. It's hard to tell what is going on uh, here in North Carolina or anywhere else in 2017, which is the year of 1,000 likes on Facebook, in which the Impediments of War Facebook page that tells you about Civil War Talk Radio 
plans to move up to getting 1,000 people to like it. We're up to 838, so thank you all for doing that. Last week was spring break here on campus. Nobody was around, no live show. I took the opportunity to read different books, not history, but learned about fractals and mathematics because... The book was on the new bookshelf at the library. It looked interesting. turned out to be full of math. I had to skip over those pages, but uh, just an interesting way to look at the universe. I'm, I'm sure there's a Civil War application there as well. But now we're back. The show is back. Students are back. March Madness is here, the time every year when, um, when people... Uh, um, uh, when the March Madness is the time when... Uh, we all look forward to the PGSA, Pitt-Greenville Soccer Association, spring season. And teams like uh, the team I play for, which has renamed itself Monstars, I'm not sure what that is, uh, plays its first game this Sunday, uh, and I'll, I'll report back to you on that. In other sports, the uh, my alma mater, University of Michigan, won the Big Ten basketball title this past week after having its airplane go through an aborted takeoff and skid off the runway on its way to Washington, D.C. Uh, nobody was hurt, fortunately. It does put sports into perspective, though, when something like that happens. And then sports goes right back out of perspective when the East Carolina University Pirates baseball team uh, wins a bunch of games and is now eighth in the country, uh, yesterday beating Duke, an accomplishment all right-thinking people everywhere can appreciate. Uh, it's really fun to see the Pirates competing on a national level with, uh, with anyone, and that's what they're doing there. So, uh, back in Civil War uh, world, check out the Impediments of War website, www.impedimentsofwar. Find the books that we talk about on the show. You can buy a copy. Uh, pressing the button usually will get you to uh, pressing the, the clicking on the image of the book will get you to Amazon and we get a click through for that. There's also the donation button. Please consider contributing to Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, recurring gifts are especially welcome if you find yourself getting more than, let's say, a dollar and a quarter's worth of value out of the, the show this evening, uh, then put down $5 a month and you're still coming out ahead, uh, and uh, the show comes out ahead too. For any donation of $25 or more, let me know if you're interested. I'll send you a copy of my late colleague David E. Long's book, The Jewel of Liberty, Abraham Lincoln's Re-Election and the End of Slavery. Uh, I have a few of these that uh, had belonged to David, and I'm sending them to you and using the money you send me to send off to the Civil War Trust uh, as a donation in David's name. So you send it to me. PayPal takes a cut. I get it. I send it to Civil War Trust. I think I, I think somebody loses money on every transaction, but we'll make it up in volume, so keep doing that. Do not deduct any donation on your taxes as April 15th approaches. Not allowed because I'm not a charity. One other thing approaching as we come up besides tax day on April 15th is this hallowed ground for 2017, the annual tour of Civil War battlefield sites conducted by Stephen Ambrose Tours. Go to stephenambrosetours.com. Find out about it. The tour is May 20th through the 28th. It is not too late to sign up. Uh, get hold of them. Send them your 
amounts of money they'll get you on the bus and we'll have an excellent time as always i know usually there are are at least one civil war talk radio listener uh is among the group and by the end of the week everyone's a civil war talk radio listener uh because they cannot get enough of my voice so consider coming along it will be a good time uh an educational time an inspirational time always worth doing and until then a few more shows are lined up next week uh National History Day means no live show. I'll be busy doing things for the students, uh, middle school and high school students in the area. But we'll be back on March 29th, James Conroy in Lincoln's White House, the People's House in Wartime. It's a Lincoln Prize award-winning book, and uh, it was uh, last time uh, James Conroy was on the show was also very good as previous book on the uh, the conference near the end of the war was was uh, extremely good following that april 5th uh, scott hopkins will be with us to talk about civil war tokens and you and i together will find out what are civil war tokens april 12th dennis fry a request from a number of listeners a legendary ranger at harper's ferry we'll talk about his book september suspense lincoln's union in peril and also about the Park Service and Harper's Ferry and uh, the work he does there. April 19th, Judy Giesberg returns to the show. Her new book is called Sex and the Civil War, Soldiers, Pornography, and the Making of American Morality. Should be interesting. And one more just added to the lineup today, April 26th, Jonathan White, another returnee. If you write a good enough book i cannot keep you off the show even with the five-year rule Uh, this one is called midnight in america darkness sleep and dreams during the civil war so just when you think all the titles have been thought of all the battles have been covered someone figures out we've only covered 50 percent of the civil war the daylight and now a book about darkness and dreams during the war so that's on april 26th lots coming up tonight we talk about another subject that has not really been covered in its own right in the past, uh, touched on and surrounded by other authors. But the first book that I'm aware of that focuses exclusively on the, uh, the company officers of the Civil War, the title is Citizen Officers, the Union and Confederate Volunteer Junior Officer Corps in the American Civil War. The author is Andrew S. Bledsoe, and he joins us now. Uh, Professor Bledsoe, are you there? Yeah, Jerry, I'm here. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, and a happy Ides of March to you today. Thank you. It is that uh, that day, the uh, fate of tyrants uh, settled so many centuries ago on this day. Uh, we'll see what happens uh, this time around. Um, do you go by Andrew, Drew, Andy? Drew. I typically go Skippy. by Drew. Either one's fine. I'll answer to oh. both. Uh, Drew, Drew works for me. I have friends uh, with that name, and, and there are different varieties. You want to make sure you get the right one. Sure. Um, so tell me a little bit about your background. What uh, brought you to an interest in the Civil War? Well, you know, I, I suspect, Jerry, that uh, uh, my background and my interest in the Civil War is probably similar to uh, a lot of your other um, guests. Um, I, I grew up in the South. I grew up in Arkansas. And so 
you know, growing up in the South, you, you kind of can't avoid the Civil War quite often. So it was sort of in the heartland of the Trans-Mississippi Theater, I suppose. And, you know, some of my earliest uh, childhood memories are um, trips with my mom and dad to places like Vicksburg and to, to Pea Ridge. And, you know, just, just being there as a little kid just, just sort of kindled that spark uh, in my mind and my heart. And, you know, it's just always been kind of a passion of mine. It's, it's really almost inexplicable, but I am drawn to the Civil War like probably many of your listeners are. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I'm doing some research for the show, clicked on your university website, and uh, there's a picture of you which suggests that you were not around during the centennial of the Civil War in the 1960s. Right, um, that you're you're younger than that, and uh, a lot of listeners are from my generation uh, of growing up in the '60s, at or just after the centennial, and having that same experience. And and occasionally, as old people will do, we'll complain about, oh, the young people today they just don't get it. And uh, yet, I find that's not the case uh, from my students, and then from from younger faculty like yourself. You hear these same stories. You grow up. You visit a battlefield, and there's a certain percentage in every generation for whom it just starts a fire that, that doesn't extinguish. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, you know, I was reminded uh, listening to your theme music of, of the Ken Burns series. And, <laughs> it, you know, for people of, of my generation, my age range, I think, you know, that that documentary series for, you know, for its all of its flaws, and there are some, of course, <laughs> um, it really was uh, formative as far as, you know, uh, guiding me again towards a passion uh, for for the period, for sure. So you uh, you you teach American history. I'm always curious about uh, people's job paths as well, uh, especially in an era where where it's it, it's a it's a tough road to hoe to to get into higher education. Did did you always set out to to teach American history? Um, actually, no, Jerry. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Um, I understand that you had a prior career before entering the academy, and um, I also did. I actually began my early career as, a, as an attorney, went to law school, took the bar, practiced for a few years, and uh, for a variety of reasons became sort of tired and disillusioned with, with the law and, and went back to graduate school. So uh, I, I started in the law and ended up in academia. And, uh, you know, my, my bank account probably doesn't thank me for that, but certainly my <laughs> quality of life is uh, entirely different in, in a positive way, I'd say. I, that's exactly my experience as well. And I, you heard me mention David Long, uh, a late colleague here at ECU. He, he also was a uh, practice law for a few years before he went the PhD route and, and studied Civil War as I did and you did. Uh, there's something there. I, did, I, I will say I, I found studying law makes me, uh, for what it's worth, a better historian than I would be otherwise. Do you feel that way? I do, yeah. I, I feel like you know, some of, the, some of the, the, the thought processes and the skills and you know, the ability to gather evidence and marshal it into arguments and articulate it in clear ways, those are, I mean, those are essential skills for being an effective historian, as well as, as for an attorney. I feel like, you know, th- there's a lot of overlap between uh, the skill set in both of those professions and ways of thinking, for sure. So what brought you to this particular project to look at the, the junior officers of the Civil War? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And, you know, I think 
like a lot of uh, historical projects, a lot of books, it it began as a series of questions that I was I was kind of asking myself about this period. Um, you, you know, uh, uh, as a group, I think you mentioned this earlier uh, in your introduction. As a group, um, junior officers or captains and lieutenants, um, shockingly, really to me at least, to this point in the 150 some odd years since the Civil War, they haven't really been considered as a distinct group in a you know specific study and you know as you alluded to we know a lot about these particular um, people these kinds of soldiers but they haven't been looked at um, specifically and you know the question I have of course is sort of basic to any sort of military history study and that's you know how do armies function um, how are they led in the field of battle? How do they endure the, the trial of combat? Um, how do they carry out instructions and accomplish things? And, you know, of course, command and leadership are, are essential to the, that process. Uh, but we haven't really, I don't think, up until maybe this point, begun asking questions about these specific leaders. And, and there are some unique questions and unique answers, I think, that we can pull from from this particular group. Well, it is... As you say, remarkable that we really haven't done that up to now, that we've, we've uh, let this group go. You mentioned lieutenants and captains. Just always a good way to start is to define one's terms. When you say junior officers, we're, we're not talking about the generals. Uh, we're not talking about colonels of regiments here. What, what size unit are we talking about? Yeah, we're, we're looking at companies. Um, you know, and of course, uh, a company, a Civil War company on paper is obviously quite different than a, a Civil War company in reality in terms of numbers and composition and that sort of thing. Uh, but generally speaking, you know, across armies and across the years during the Civil War period, we're looking at groups of, you know, anywhere from 30, 40, 50, 60 men. And, uh, you know, typically a, a Civil War company is the smallest really functional um, battlefield organization that you would see um, in any sort of combat setting. You know, there are divisions below below companies, but during the Civil War era, you know, company was about as, as small, uh, small a unit as you could get. And, you know, well, there's that, some unique a, things. Um, go ahead. I'm sorry, Jerry. I say, well, that, that's a good – let's take a quick break here. We'll come back and talk about the, the men who command these companies and, and, uh, uh, and, and whatever subgroups are in them. Our topic tonight, the Union and Confederate Volunteer Junior Officer Corps in the American Civil War. The book's title, Citizen Officers, our guest, Andrew Bledsoe. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Drew Bledsoe, author of Citizen Officers, the Union and Confederate Volunteer Junior Officer Corps in the American Civil War. And we established, just as we went to the break there, that we're talking about the the smallest uh, meaningful or military organization of the Civil War, the company, nominally as many as 100, but often, as Drew, as you pointed out, smaller than that, is as small as 30, even by the end of the war, commanded by a captain, assisted by a first and second lieutenant. And these officers, uh, they're volunteers just like the men. Uh, Why, I I guess, I'm fascinated by the same issue that that you are, how, how you go from having no military force to speak of in 1860 to armies of hundreds of thousands within a few years. How do you organize them? Who commands them? Uh, The ideal is every citizen is a soldier at need, but hadn't the militia system more or less uh, decayed by the time the Civil War began? Did people still take this ideal of service seriously? Well, it's a great question, and uh, you're right. The the militia system, um, the Annabella militia system, really was, and I think decay is probably a, a good way to think about it. It's sort of an atrophy situation. Uh, you know, not that not that the American militia system was really particularly militarily effective at all um, at any point, but but certainly, you know, by the 1860s or, or so, there there is an increasing kind of um, turning away, I suppose, uh, from a kind of formal uh, sense that you know that military service is something real and tangible that that all American men uh, should engage in. But you know, having having said that, because you know the structure and and the institution of, of American militias was in decline, that doesn't mean that the ideas that are that are sort of at the heart of that entire system, the, the citizen-soldier ethos that I talk about in my book and others have um, expounded upon, uh, those, those are certainly still, I think, very powerful ideas in uh, antebellum thought on, in both the North and the South. And so those, those ideas of malicious uh, service or military service being linked to you know, your, your identity as an American or your, your citizenship, for lack of a better word, uh, those are still uh, pretty potent. 
The one thing that struck me is you, you suggested that it's equally potent in North and South. Uh, that I mean, well, how, how is it the same? Are there differences between the the ideology of of military service, the idea that everyone uh, can or should serve at need? Yeah, there there are distinctions. But but I, I think it's important, and it's a point um, that you know I try to emphasize, and I hope you know others will will think about this point too. Uh, we we tend to when we look at Civil War soldiers, we we tend to draw this kind of binary, right? There are mm-hmm. Confederates, and then there are Federals, and they believe different things, and they fought for different things, and those are all you know certainly valid points. But I think it is important too that you know the Civil War is unique in the sense that uh, this is in fact a civil war within a nation. And that, that Southerners and Northerners, uh, particularly those who are thinking about military service, uh, they did draw their mutual history back to the American Revolution. And they did both uh, look to the founding fathers and to that revolutionary generation um, with a sense of pride. Of course, they interpret their pasts differently in a lot of ways. But, mm-hmm. but certainly they, they are drawing from, I think, a common um, tradition of military service, and they share a lot of overlap. You mentioned that in, in the Mexican War, the War with Mexico, you have uh, this same, this, this ethos is called upon. You have the regular army, but mostly you have volunteer units going, and you have the West Point trained officers who command the army uh, who are quite different. Uh, there is a separate officer tradition. Uh, there is a professional officer tradition uh, from the founding of West Point up through through Mexico and up through the Civil War. Where where do those officers fit into the, the, the scheme you're talking about here? Yeah, the Mexican War is is important um, because I think it really it, it draws a, a a really bold line underneath the kind of. Um, I don't know, alienation might be a little strong, but, but certainly something has happened um, between, you know, the War of 1812 and, and the 1840s and, and into the 1850s. And I think what's going on in the process that others have written about um, that's taking place is, is this kind of professionalization that's taking, taking place within the regular United States Army. And West Pointers, of course, are, are the epitome of that professionalization. The American regular Army Officer Corps is very different than, than the militia that are serving uh, with them, uh, the militia officers who are serving as well. And, you know, it doesn't take a lot of snooping to, to look at the, the West Pointers and their opinions of these volunteers who are fighting in Mexico. And, you know, almost uniformly, they have almost nothing good to say about these state volunteers who are down there. There's, they're indisciplined. They don't understand basic military uh, discipline and tactics, and they don't have any training. They don't have good hygiene. They violate the the locals. They do all sorts of things that uh, the West Pointers just absolutely are appalled by. And you you sort of are seeing already uh, this distance that's growing between um, volunteers and uh, and the professionals. And what's interesting about your your topic here is that the the officers you're writing about, the captains and lieutenants. They fall on the, the volunteer side of that division. They are officers in common with the West Pointers, but they, they, they get the same contempt from the West Pointers in terms of their lack of professionalism. So They do. Yeah, they, they absolutely do. And, you know, it, it, 
at any point during the Civil War, I, I would suspect that being in either of these armies, th- these are tough jobs. But uh, really, it, it's it's difficult for me to imagine a, a tougher position to be in than that of, you know, say a captain or a lieutenant in a volunteer regiment, because you know it's sort of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. The the professionals look down on you as an amateur and an incompetent buffoon and a bumpkin and that sort of thing often. And then your men, your volunteers, uh, look at you as a, a martinet or a you know a pretend officer and all that that sort of thing. So, yeah, volunteer uh, officers, particularly the junior ones who aren't professionals, they're caught between these two worlds: the the volunteer militia uh, ethos and then then the regularizing, uh, professionalizing officer corps of West Pointers. It's a tough spot to be in for sure. Well, that really runs through the, the entire book, that dilemma that these men find themselves in. Uh, because in addition to the, the citizen-soldier ethos, or maybe as a, as a part of it, you have the whole idea that every uh, American male, at least every free white adult male, is equal. Uh, this is the Jacksonian era. Uh, the, the franchise is spreading. And uh, every man is as good as every other man. But now you're in the army together and the guy you used to work with out in the field or on the shop floor is a lieutenant and you're not and he's got authority over you and and how do they reconcile this equality of all citizens with uh one man being able to order another man to do something that's liable to get him killed yeah i think i think you've touched on maybe the most difficult part of of officering in a volunteer unit particularly early in the war the first two or even first three years of, of the civil war um those those pre-war connections that that so many of these units bring with them you know and of course you know as your listeners know Civil War companies and regiments are, are very often raised from communities, and so there's a kind of community identity, and there's a shared history and a shared past that many of these men bring to the war with them. And, and those, those things can tie men together in combat, but at the same time, they can really complicate uh, situations where, where coercion or leadership uh, is put to the test and coercion is necessary. It makes it extremely difficult to lead men who... Uh, remember you when you were a little kid and you were, you know, skipping rocks at the creek and and they teased you and you fought and all that kind of stuff, right? It's it's hard to take an officer seriously when you uh, have known them for so long. And and again, that egalitarian impulse that you mentioned as well makes it even more difficult. So you think about what it is that inspires people, one person to follow another or one person to have authority over another. Uh, and a lot of the things one would traditionally look for are, are missing here. Uh, certainly expertise is one reason why we follow people. I'll follow my doctor's orders because I think uh, he or she has been to med school and knows know what they're talking about. So I'll, I'll obey what they tell me. Unless it's to lose weight, then I have a problem. But um, <laughs> but generally, I'll, 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 I'll agree with them because they have knowledge. But these officers don't have knowledge. Uh, another one is just you know aristocratic birthright authority, but the United States has rejected that altogether. Uh, so, so how do these officers get their men to follow them? Yeah, that, that's again. Th- these are questions that you know not only are we asking; these are questions that captains and lieutenants in 1861 are asking themselves. How do I get my men to do what I want when I don't even know how to do my job myself? <laughs> it's a it's a really tough 
problem? Uh, you know, and it's a complicated answer. I think, you know, there are, there are a lot of different ways uh, to persuade uh, volunteer soldiers to obey you. But I think, you know, the key word there is, is persuasion. Um, it's mm-hmm. a different situation than, say, in a regular Army unit or maybe even, you know, in, in the, the kind of modern sense of what militaries are and how they work, where you issue orders and then there's obedience or punishment. And those are the two options for, for the the soldier that's that's faced with that that decision, uh, volunteers expected, uh, Confederates and Federals expected uh, that their orders uh, make sense, and they expected to be given an explanation by their officers when the orders didn't make sense to them, and so so persuasion I think is is perhaps the most important um, aspect of, of Civil War leadership in a volunteer unit. Not only did you have to command authority, you had to persuade your men that you were a leader worth following. That's really hard to do. In, in fact, maybe should have started with this, the whole question of how one becomes an officer. Uh, you point out, uh, as, as I imagine most, most listeners to the show already know, that officers in many units at the beginning of the war were elected by their men. But you point out that this process of election, at least at the, the company level, continues much longer into the war than, than uh, some people have thought. Can you t- talk about the whole idea of electing an officer? Sure, yeah. And again, you know, to the modern mind, uh, the, the thought of electing military officers to lead you into combat probably sounds uh, insane, I mean, if, if you think about it. Um, but I think it's important to remember that in, in 1861, um, it wasn't insane. In fact, this was the way that it was sort of expected to be done, and it was the way that it had been done in the militia uh, tradition uh, since the founding of, of the nation. Um, uh, the election of officers is, is a kind of reflection of the attitudes uh, of many Americans, most Americans, when it came to military service. They, uh, and there, there are some reasons for that that are related to you know things like Jacksonian egalitarianism and other things. Uh, but, but I think that... It, it sort of gives us an insight um, into the, the kind of um, attitude that Americans had about militia service. And, and I think the overriding prerogative that, that many Americans expected is that they wanted some control. They expected to have an element of control over their military service. They looked at fighting for the nation, whether that's the Confederacy or, or for the United States. They looked at it as, as a kind of... Uh, civic virtue, a kind of service that they're doing uh, for their nation, and so they expected to have an element of say in who would be leading them. Um, you know, again, all, all of these people consider themselves to be equals. Uh, we're all equal citizens here under the law, and um, as a result of that, by, by agreeing to enter military service and agreeing to put my body at risk and to follow orders and that sort of thing, I'm surrendering my rights as an American, as a Southerner, as a Northerner, however you want to look at it. And because you are, as a voluntary citizen, giving up some of your your natural God-given rights, um, they demanded to have some control over who would be ordering them around. I think that's probably at the root of all of that. And you say that did continue throughout the war in some cases? Were officers still being elected as late as 1864? Did it you did. find examples yeah. of that? In fact, um, the Confederates, believe it or not, were, were the ones to abolish the election system first. And in fact, um, I've done a lot of digging in this. You know, I, I, I uh, have not found any evidence that the Federals 
um, ever actually formally got rid of the election system. Um, Robert E. Lee, I think, was the first one to actually issue general orders saying we're not going to do this anymore. Um, now, that's not to say that the election system uh, wasn't criticized. It was fiercely criticized, of course, mostly by West Pointers, but increasingly um, by volunteer officers themselves who, uh, who came to see it as, as a liability uh, for a lot of reasons that are probably, probably obvious. But, but certainly it, it, was, uh, it was a kind of prerogative that volunteers clung to, and they were really protective of it. It, it, you also point out that in many cases they, they, they felt it was very important that a new officer be selected from within the company, that if a lieutenant were promoted, captain were promoted out of the company, uh, the lieutenant moves up and, and the new second lieutenant should be someone who's already there. Right. Yeah. The, 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 I think one of the, the essential, uh, one of the essential characteristics of this command relationship at the company level was, um, had to do with trust. And outsiders were, were not to be trusted. Um, and again, you know, we, we think of, of uh, often of Civil War officers as the, the kind of figure on horseback, you know, stoically commanding during battle. But, but I think it's important to remember that company officers, um, while they were officers and they do, content, you know, uh, have privileges and prerogatives and, and better pay and uniforms and all that, um, they do live, work, and fight alongside their men. And those bonds that build up over time are extra- incredibly important uh, to maintaining the integrity of the company. And, and so volunteers were extremely reluctant to surrender those, whether that's through promotion or, or any, other, any other sort of uh, measure. So we end up with, uh, with regiments, uh, with companies that are commanded by people that, that the soldiers know that they have these bonds with, which then must make it difficult to exercise discipline. Uh, it can. Yeah, it definitely can. Um, and, and efforts to exercise discipline, they have to be done, I think, with, with a lot of sensitivity, a lot of empathy, and, and a lot of, really, of subtlety. Um, and again, this is something that, that, that's impossible, really, to teach in a, in a manual. Um, it's something that the officers had to learn and feel out on their own, and, and many failed. Um, but knowing when and how to apply discipline to unruly volunteers, again, is, is probably one of the toughest things uh, that volunteer officers had to do, and, and many never quite got the hang of it. Um, and, and very quickly, volunteers found ways to retaliate uh, against officers they believe were being, uh, as they often put it, tyrannical towards them. So the, the, the give and take continues both ways. We'll come back. After a short break, talk more about citizen officers, the junior, the Union and Confederate Volunteer Junior Officer Corps in the Civil War, with our guest tonight, Andrew S. Bledsoe, author of the book. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. 
think you've seen online TV before. Let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Andrew S. Bledsoe, author of Citizen Officers, the Union and Confederate Volunteer Junior Officer Corps in the American Civil War. We've been talking about these men who commanded companies, uh, who who assisted the captains, the lieutenants, the first and second lieutenants, uh, the men who served alongside their troops, who were themselves volunteers, untrained at the start of the war, and how they had to deal with the many problems of exerting authority over men who had been equals to them in civil life a short time before. Drew, I want to ask you a question about your research strategy for the book. As I was reading it, I was sensing a lot in common with uh, uh, the book I wrote on the Army of the Ohio, which focused on how, how they were organized. The same question in many ways that, uh, that, that we talked about at the beginning tonight. And did you find yourself coming up with categories and then as you read through sources saying, oh, this story fits here, this one fits there, or reading the material first and saying, okay, I I see there's a bunch of things, so here's a category for it. Um, Or maybe you don't use that kind of categorization at all. How how did you approach this material? Well, that's a a good question. It it was a bit of a challenge um, in, in, in sort of seeking out these sources uh, that I that I relied upon. Uh, one of the problems that I faced is is that very often when you're when you're trying to dig through archives and find letters and diaries and firsthand accounts and that that kind of thing, uh, very often archives don't organize soldier letters by rank. So so actually finding these people of this particular rank and this particular status. Uh, was tough. You sort of had to feel your way through, and you had to read a lot of unit rosters and, and look for specific uh, cues and clues and, and that that sort of thing. But you know, once I gathered uh, what I felt like was a was a solid source base, um, you do start to to detect patterns, uh, and you do start to sense 
uh, it's hard really to describe, but you start to sense when certain soldiers are going to become officers. And there are certain things in common that, that these captains and lieutenants uh, often shared, and you know, I try to break those things down uh, demographically in my research samples and the like. But yeah, you, you do start to, to see patterns, um, and you can often sometimes see, that, see them even in their, their grammar and the way that they write. Uh, they tend to be a little more eloquent, a little more thoughtful, often, not always, but often, and, and uh, they share certain uh, similar characteristics in the ways that they, they compose themselves. Well, you did put together a research sample. You have uh, some data in an appendix, and you talk about it in the book itself, about the uh, these officers in terms of their age, wealth, and so on. Do they differ from the, the soldiers they command in those ways? Yeah, they do. Um, and, and probably in ways that are that are fairly uh, predictable, I suspect most of us probably could intuit uh, the differences that I found. Um, m- maybe not entirely, but um, yeah, I had a sample of you know nearly 2,600 um, junior officers, uh, men that had at some point served as a, a lieutenant or a captain, and from both sides, and drawn from a, a kind of what I felt was a fairly representative uh, geographic uh, sample. Um, and what I found was that, that officers on both sides tended to be just a, just a little bit older uh, than their average men, which I guess is not terribly surprising, but you know they're all in their mid-20s roughly. Um, and in particular, uh, you see a, a class or an economic divide emerge uh, in the Confederate junior officer corps, which I suppose, again, is, is maybe not all that surprising. Um, Confederate junior officers tended to come from families with uh, with a good amount of uh, of wealth and, and uh, property, um, but they are in many ways similar to uh, their men, and that they come from a variety of, of um, occupations, a variety of income backgrounds, um, and the like. They they do, as I mentioned, tend to be slightly more mature. Not always, but slightly a little older. Um, um, many of them happen or happen to be married. Some of them have kids and, and that, that kind of thing. You you said some of the things you found were not particularly surprising, and that that kind of ran through the book for me and and for some listeners that will be the case. If somebody is, is relatively new to study of the Civil War, then then everything is new. Um, but some of the things, like finding the you know, the officers are somewhat older, or uh, uh, that they they struggled with some of these uh, issues that we talked about, are are things that no one is as focused on. But at the same time, they're not they're sort of intuitive. Was there anything in your research that you found really surprising? Yeah, um, and it, you know, again, I um, I agree. I think. Um, there's a there's a kind of uh, temptation for for historians to to want to try to come up with something new and exciting and world changing in in our research and you know sometimes the evidence doesn't lead you that way and you know you sort of you have to follow the evidence and and it, this sort of confirmed a lot of things that I think I and, and probably again many of your listeners already suspected but as far as I know no one had actually compiled and placed this all in one one place. But yeah, to answer your question, I think what really sort of uh, drew me um, in and also kind of shocked me uh, were the casualty rates um, on both sides. You know, I, I think, again, intuitively, I suspected that, that officers suffered high casualty rates. Um, what I didn't expect was how high they actually were, and they, they are pretty shocking. 
Well, let's talk numbers, because that, that's exactly what I was going to ask you next about uh, uh, casualties among the, the junior officers. Yeah, um, well, and we can talk about, if you'd like, also the reasons why these numbers are the way they are. But, but again, looking at my, my sample, um, what I found was that um, on the union side, junior officers suffered a casualty rate of around 43%, wow. which is un, unacceptable. And imagine, you know, the United States Army and its various actions in the Middle East and so forth suffering a 43% casualty rate. There would be a, a national outrage over this sort of thing. Um, you know, and just by way of comparison, uh, looking at uh, James McPherson's, you know, battle, uh, his um, for cause and comrades, he he did a, a similar sort of approach, and he estimated that that in the Union Army there were about there was about a 16% casualty rate over all ranks, so 43% among officers compared to McPherson's 16% over all ranks. It's it's unbelievable. You know, if that wasn't bad enough, Confederates had an even higher rate, um, about 47% casualty rate among my sample of, of junior officers. That's compared to a 31% rate, which is, again, really high over, over all ranks. But, I mean, you look, you look at it, and one way to look at it is you have a 50-50 shot as a junior officer of making it through the war in, in one piece. So, so then, obviously, the next question is why? What made them so vulnerable? Well, I think a couple of things. Um, First, the nature of, of the company officer's job requires them uh, to be conspicuous. Um, you have to be conspicuous in combat. Um, the only way to effectively lead in a combat situation is to be seen. Um, and men expected, volunteers expected their officers to be seen, and to be seen not in a cowardly way but in a, in a courageous way. Um, and again, you know, uh, the nature of Civil War combat also, very different than modern combat, um, the command radius or the effectiveness of a, of a company commander in battle uh, was limited often by your presence or by your voice. So you had to be heard, you had to be seen, and this, of course, is going to expose you to enemy fire in, in significant ways. Um, and also, again, you know, there are the, the prerogatives and, and the expectations uh, of you must be leading from the front, you must lead by example, and all of these things are, are compounding the danger um, for Civil War company officers. It's a really tough, dangerous job. That ties in with what we were discussing earlier of, of how an officer was able to to earn the authority since he doesn't have the book knowledge or the West Point training or the uh, wealth or birth necessarily in a in a in an aristocratic society, uh, one way they had to do it was by, by, like you just said, leading from the front. They had to demonstrate that they were worthy of their uh, their leadership, as you point out. Now, you suggest that as the war goes on, the soldiers, uh, that, that these officers, you, you use the word regularization, which is interesting double entendre. They're more like the regular <laughs> army. Uh, but they're not professionalizing. What's the distinction? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And, you know, I, I accept that regular, regularization, it's hard to say, and it's also a bit of a, a kind of a clunky, uh, strange word. And uh, it's a conversation I had with, with my editor at LSU. Is, is this a word, and what does it mean, and all that? <laughs> but, it, you know, really, I still think it's probably the best way I, I can describe uh, to describe this process um, what I've what I found is that over time, um, with experience that's being accrued in combat and so forth, what these volunteer company officers learned is 
that they probably would never be professionals. They certainly were not going to be officers of the same caliber and quality of, of the West Pointers. And believe me, they certainly had their eye on West Pointers if they could find any. Um, but what they did, I think, come to accept and come to understand is that, you know, we are not professionals. We're not West Pointers. This is not our lifelong career and occupation. But the West Pointers, the professionals, they're on to something. They know how to lead. They know how to be effective. And maybe we should try to emulate that. Maybe we should adopt more of a regular Army mentality when it comes to leading our, our troops. Um, and so they, they, again, are, as I mentioned earlier, they're caught between these two worlds of the regular Army discipline and, and that sort of thing and the volunteer militia ethos, and they have to compromise. And what I found over time is that these officers who make it through to 64 and to 65, again, on both sides, um, they tend to lean towards a more regular Army discipline, r- rigorousness, and um, or is that even a word either? <laughs> Rigor. Um, there we but go. you get the idea, right? Yeah. Listen. So they're 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 becoming more like regulars and abandoning many of the the kind of um, amateurish things that they brought with them to the war initially. At one point you made that I found uh, interesting was that by 1864 and 65, the the good officers who had maybe been elected, maybe appointed in 62, earlier in the war. By this time, if they're not among that 40% plus who become casualties, and they're worth anything at all, then they've been promoted, and they've moved up the ranks. So by late in the war, you really have a whole new set of junior officers in these armies. That was something I'd never thought about that. Yeah, the, the, I think the nature of the junior officer corps uh, evolves, and, and for the very reasons that, that you point out. Um, you know, leadership, uh, effective combat leadership is at a premium, and, and the, the demand for good leaders um, only increases as the war drags on, and particularly in the Confederate Army, as there's such just absolute carnage among uh, the Army of Northern Virginia's officer corps, the Army of Tennessee's officer corps in, in mid-war period, um, good leaders are hard to find. And any junior officer who demonstrates really any modicum of ability, of talent, and so forth, um, they are usually on, on the fast track to uh, field command or even, even higher. And, of course, you know, there are some very famous um, generals who didn't spend a, a day at West Point, you know, Forrest and Claiborne and, you know, I'm thinking John Logan on the northern side and others, you know, so-called political generals. And, of course, you know, there's a negative connotation of that. But many of these, quote, unquote, political generals are, are simply volunteer officers who show a lot of ability and rise, rise through the ranks. And so because of that attrition, um, the nature of the junior officer corps by 64 and 65 is quite different. The officers that, that are leading companies by the end of the war tend to be former non-commissioned um, officers, sergeants, and corporals from within the company or even elsewhere um, who've seen it. And they've been there for years, and they, uh, they find themselves as officers towards the end. So they, they may lack, in some cases, the, the education or, or wealth or community standing of the early officers, but they've got experience. They know what they're doing, and, and it, it changes the complexion. Well, that, that is one of many interesting things that emerges from this book. Uh, it is remarkable that no one has focused on this particular subset of the Civil War armies as a topic up to now. Uh, so listeners, if you're interested in finding out more about the 
junior officers of the Civil War. The book is called Citizen Officers. The author is Andrew S. Bledsoe. Drew, thanks for being on the show tonight. Thanks, Jerry. It was a real pleasure. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.